What everybody? How you doing? I'm looking pretty good. I'm okay, thanks, man. Thank you. Uh, if you were here last week, you would have heard us begin our new series on the gospel and giving, and we talked about two things mainly. We talked about giving and uh, grace, and we talked about giving and guilt, and this morning we're going to talk about giving and greed and giving and gladness. That's four Gs so far, all right? That's, that's not bad. No applause? All right, so no, no worries. Five years at Bible college for nothing. All right, so we're going to talk about greed. We're going to talk about gladness in, the, in, in respect to our giving. And we're going to see it's when I'm talking about giving, we had a good question last week. I'm not just talking about um, giving to the church. I'm talking about giving in general, generosity in general. We are focusing mainly on money at this point, but you can just sub in your time, your giftedness, uh, mainly going to be talking about money. So why don't we pray together, and then we'll jump into this morning's message. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We know you because you have spoken to us. I thank you that each one of us this morning have a clear copy of your word before us. Lord, help us not to neglect it. Please train our minds on your word now and open our hearts to its truth. I pray that everything I say would bring you honour because you're worthy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um... About oh, over a decade ago now, it's got to be nearly 13 years ago, I was on the beach with Renee, we were hanging out together, and we weren't yet married, but, you know, obligatory Christian disclaimer, we were staying with other people, alright, alright, and um, on the beach, we were reading the Bible as well, okay, so keeping it holy, and we were reading the book of Luke, and we read, I can picture it exactly Right now, we were sitting on some rocks around a rock pool, and we were reading Luke, and we came to Luke 12, and we read a passage which I can just remember having the wind knocked out of me. Like, it was just, we just got knocked over, and it was a simultaneous thing. You know how often you'll be knocked over by something, your husband or wife doesn't get it? We were just together, just knocked over by this, by this passage and by this truth, and namely, what it would mean for us when we did get married, what it would mean for us and our finances. And so I'm going to read this to you to see if God isn't pleased to do the same for you. Luke 12, 15 to 23, it'll be on the screen. Jesus said to them, this is a crowd of people, watch out, exclamation mark, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger bigger ones. And there I will store up my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! 
This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. So we read that, and we just sat in silence for a little bit, and in fear and trembling. Because, like you guys, we have grown up in a culture where this just lands like a bolt of lightning, right? Life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. And it comes amid, amidst like a trillion marketing images and messages that we imbibe every week, right? So Jesus says, be on your guard. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Because greed sneaks up on you. This is what you need to know. Like, like know your enemy. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because it can sneak up on you. It's not like committing adultery. You don't just wake up in bed with someone else's wife and go, well, how did this happen, right? Greed does happen like that. You can wake up one morning and be the kind of person that Jesus calls a fool. So he says, be on your guard. Keep this on your to-do list. Have it pinned to the top. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Don't just limit it down to the kind of greed that your boss has that you hate, right? Or whatever, your ex-wife or whatever it is. Don't just be on your guard against the kind of greed that you see in others, but be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And he, he, he sort of calls out a couple of them, right? So there's the greed of the rich fool. The greed that loves luxury. The greed that loves abundance. The greed that is, for whom life is all about accumulation. I've got too much for my barn. Screw it. I'm just going to build some more barns, right? And he's a fool because God says to him, you're dead. Now what? Now what? Who, who gets your stuff? You're not bringing it with you, right? That's become like a trite kind of thing that we say these days. It's almost like a, a trope. You know, you can't take it with you. But it's true, right? There's, I, I've done a lot of funerals. There was never a, a trailer behind the hearse with all your junk in it. So he says, you fool. You have spent your life your entire life, because I'm, I'm killing you tonight, you spend your whole life accumulating stuff for someone else. And there's an implicit judgment against his greed in withholding from others what they could have used and keeping it for himself. So there's that kind of greed in verse 20 and 21, the, the luxurious, accumulative materialistic greed. There's also the greed that m- many more of us have 
It's an average Joe kind of greed. It's the greed that worries about having enough. It's the greed that drives your anxiety whenever you think about money. Right? Yeah. That just landed on a whole lot more of us, I think. So in verse 22 and 23, he talks about this, do not be consumed, is the word he used. Don't be consumed by thoughts of money or clothes. Your life is about more than that stuff. And your father knows you need that stuff. So often, we mistake our needs for our greeds. Can I get an amen? But God promises to provide for our needs. I have been, from that day reading that passage on the beach until now, one of the, the most common exclamations that, I, that happens to me that I say to Renee is, how do we have this money? How do we have it to pay for this or that thing? Right? It's like, this is crazy. Oh, that's right. Jesus said he would provide for us. It turns out he is the Lord of heaven and earth. But to the extent that you are consumed by your desire for money and food and clothes beyond your needs, that is the same greed that Jesus calls out here. It's the average Joe kind of greed. It's, it's the you and me kind of greed. And so he says, be on your guard against materialism. That's at the heart of it. That's the philosophy of life that drives those two kinds of greed, all right? Here's what materialism is. An inordinate preoccupation with and concern for money, possessions, and material things. And we live in the midst of a materialistic culture, right? That is the air we breathe every day, day and night. When you woke up this morning, you started breathing materialistic air. And the whole, like, I mean, the whole world's economy runs on this belief. It depends on us having this belief. Inordinate, preoccupation, concern, money, possession, and material things. Now, if you trust God to provide for your needs, you don't have any of this. It's like a miracle. So Jesus says, be on your guard against the kind of materialism that drives the rich fool and the kind of materialism that drives most of us. Some of us are the rich fool as well, by the way. You need to hear God say, you fool, this morning. And then don't get angry at me, get angry at God. He said it, all right? I'm just reading it. So if ever there was a word for us in our culture today, it's this word. And when Jesus said it, he was thinking of us. As well as his hearers. So Paul says to his church in Ephesus that Timothy is now the elder of, overseer of, he says this, and he says it to us as well in 1 Timothy 6, command, ooh, we don't like that, do we? We do not like that. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, 
which is so uncertain. might want to underline that. You can do it in the church Bible. Everyone needs to have that underlined. So uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Just leave that up there for us, guys. So he's, he's saying to Timothy, the overseer, the pastor of his church in Ephesus, command those who are rich to do two things, and, oh, sorry, to, to not do two things, and to do three things. Now the people who are rich in Timothy's church, how, how are they classified as rich? They have an abundance. They have leftovers. So that's us. You got leftovers? You got a bit saved away somewhere? That's us. So he says, command everyone. Seeing Caroline Springs Anglican today. Don't do two things. Don't be arrogant. What does he mean by that? He means... Don't be what we love to be, right? Especially in our little kind of tall poppy Australian culture, right? Don't, don't be the one who boasts about being a self-made person. We sit, hear that so often, right? I used to say this a lot because I went to a school full of rich kids and my best friend was a really rich kid and one of the things that impressed me so much about him was that he wasn't like a silver spoon kind of guy. He was just an ordinary guy and um, he could kind of take or leave all the stuff that he had. And I used to say of his dad, who came out from Glasgow with nothing in his pockets and became a dentist and ended up with lots of money, I used to say, you know, it's so good, he came here with nothing and now he's got a Porsche racing car. There's something in us that loves to boast in the self-made man and Paul says, don't be that person. Don't be the person who claims it and don't be the person who boasts of it. Why? Well, he tells us, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Why do you have anything? Why do you have anything? The clothes on your back, the breakfast in your gut. Why do you have anything? God provided it. And then a little, the little kind of lawyer gets going in our hearts and we're like, yo, I worked 80 hours this week. Yeah, and every breath you took came from God. So shut up. Don't be arrogant. He's not saying don't be rich. He's saying don't be arrogant. Don't pretend like you got it for yourself. Most of us are just the beneficiaries of Centuries of oppression of other people's anyway, right? Inherited wealth. So it says, don't be arrogant. He also says, don't hope in wealth. See that? Don't be arrogant, nor put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. He doesn't want you to put your hope in something that's going to fail you. It's so uncertain. Markets crash, right? I was on a ride yesterday at the fair. They'd already taken me for a ride 
by charging me 12 bucks to be on it. And then when I was on there, I lost five bucks out of my pocket. That's like the worst day for me ever. I've spent money on something that was overpriced, and then I lost money. It's like, oh, my Scottish blood was boiling. Whether it's losing five bucks or losing a million, wealth is uncertain. We've seen the GFC in our recent past, and Australia kind of skipped over it, but the next one is coming. So I so valued having my grandma. She died a couple of years ago. She was over 100. She lived through Great Depression and two world wars and just insight, right? Like scintillating insight that would cut through all of, the, all of this junk that we believe about being self-made and yet needing more. Don't be arrogant about your wealth. Don't put your hope in wealth because... Why? Because God might say to you, your time's up. So three things he wants us to do. Do understand that everything comes from God. Every good gift comes from him. He richly provides us with everything good for our enjoyment. If you understand this, your life, we're going to talk about gladness in a second, the the amount of gladness in your life will grow. This is a ironclad guarantee from me and God as well. If you understand not only that every dollar but every breath comes from God, that's, that's a life of worship right there in good times and bad. How many of us say grace before our meals because we want to teach our kids to pray or because it's something that we should do or, you know, what? But if you understand this, then grace becomes a worship service, right? Oh my God! I've got meat and vegetables and Coke Zero. This is insane. You've richly provide us, provided us with everything good for our enjoyment. So everything we have that we enjoy, our children, our money, our food, our marriage, everything good, our cars, our clothes, our devices, everything good becomes not the object of our worship, but a springboard for our worship, right? That's what stuff is made for. God made that 300 gram scotch fillet so that you would look at it and love it and praise him for it. And then as you eat it, your enjoyment doesn't expire with a bit of fat on the plate. That's where it ends for everyone else. The materialist, that's where it ends, right? If you're a materialist, that's where it ends. A bit of blood juice and a bit of fat. But for the Christian, it rolls on up into heaven. In worship. Ecstasy. That's what heaven is. Pretty good deal. You get to trade in your anxiety about having enough for ecstatic worship. So understand that everything good comes from Him. Do hope in God because He is unshakable, unchanging, 
the theologians say, immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You hope in God, you know what you're getting. Hope in your Apple shares, who knows? Next iPhone might be really crap. Put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Put your hope in him because he is unshakable. So do understand that everything comes from him. Do put your hope in God because he's unchanging. And do good. Do good, you rich people. Do good. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. You see what he did there? That's a little ancient Greek play on words. Be rich in good deeds. Hey, rich people, be rich in good deeds. And be generous and willing to share. Can you imagine the change in the world? Like, just imagine, we've got a, I don't know, a remote control. And we can just flick the switch and change everyone who wants to be rich to instead want to be rich in good deeds. I guess we'd call that heaven, right? Like, imagine, imagine what would happen to hip-hop songs, right? If, if, if all of the... Right? It's pretty funny. If all, if all the lyrics weren't about getting rich or die trying, right? What if it was about being rich in good deeds? That'd be amazing. They'd probably play it on Light FM or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Pretty, it's not rocket science, right? You've got an abundance. You've got more than you need. Don't boast in it. Recognize it all comes from God. Make it a launch pad for your worship and share it with others. Because you might be the means that God uses to provide for others. God doesn't just rain down manna, right? He did that once. He doesn't do that anymore. He now uses us to provide for others. We'll get to that in just a second. So two things that he doesn't want us to do. Three things that he does want us to do. Now let's go to our passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Take a look at, and this is the same passage we'll be in over these three weeks, okay? So we're just going to take chunks out of it as we go. So check out what he says in verse 13 to 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. We'll go through this pretty quickly. He says the goal is equality. He's not saying the goal is communism. Alright, let's get that straight from the start. He's not saying we have to throw everything in and then share it out equally. The early Christians did something that looked a little bit like that. This wasn't the pattern of the church uh, throughout the scriptures. And so you'll see there are people, wealthy people, who fund Paul's ministry, fund the ministry of the apostles. Wealthy. They didn't throw it all in. They kept it and made it work for the kingdom. But when Paul says that the goal is equality, he explains what he means... He says, uh, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. 
So what he wants is, out of this abundance, to fill up the needs of these people. He's not saying pour it all in and make it even. He's saying, you've got excess, they need something. And why does he have this philosophy of generosity? Why does he have this philosophy of money? It's because he believes what he wrote to Timothy. God provides us with everything we need. So, if God wants poor people to have enough money to eat, he's going to turn to the Christians and say, oh look, I gave you heaps. Now what? And too often our response is, well, I'm building a bigger barn, right? I read it in the Bible somewhere. This is the kind of bread and butter Christian greed that every one of us here, and me first, needs to be convicted by. Are there people in the world who have nothing? Yes. Do I have more than I need? Yes. Am I going to spend it on frivolous junk that one day will end up in the bin? Yes. That's three yeses. That's three strikes. If this is greed, right? Like, if this is our kind of greed, imagine if that was cured overnight. If Christian greed... or I'll say it like this. If Christian greed was cured tonight... Tomorrow, everyone's needs would be met. I'm almost certain that is ironclad truth. So I've heard people railing against God and saying, if God is love, then why are people starving? I think his response would be, I've given you everything. You just haven't shared it very well. This goes for the global stage, but it goes for our church as well. I can't think of one good reason why in the event we had, let's just make an imaginary one, even though I've got real life examples in mind. If we had someone, uh, husband and wife, three kids, husband gets killed by getting hit by a bus, they didn't have life insurance. I can't think of a single reason why we couldn't pay off their mortgage as a church. Right? If it came down to it, if we read this and received it and believed it and was convicted by it and changed by it, there's just no reason why we couldn't do that. Now, ironically, it's normally in poverty-stricken churches where that kind of thing happens. Read the Macedonians. We'll get to them in a second. So that's greed. How are you feeling? Glad you came to church today, huh? <sighs> that Bible just keeps cutting my heart in half. So let's talk about gladness. All right, we're talking about we've talked about greed. You're all a little low. Let's talk about gladness. This will probably make you feel more convicted, but it might lead you to greater gladness. Let's see. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Paul says this, Each of you, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion, for God loves 
a cheerful giver. Caveat, he's not saying God loves those people more. He's just saying he loves it when he sees it. He's, just, he's sitting here in our midst just going, yes! A little bit more greed just bit the dust. Makes Satan quiver when a cheerful Christian gives generously. Give what you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do you want an example? Let's look at the Macedonians again. We looked at this last week, chapter 8, 1 to 4. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Remember, Paul's addressing a rich, greedy church and giving them an example of a poor, generous church. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. That's called cheerful giving. We've got nothing. I'm going to sell my pants, but please let me give some more. We really want those poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to have some bread. But you don't have any bread. It doesn't matter. We just want, we just want to give. We just want to do this ministry. We, we love joy more than full tummies. Oh, man. The privilege of sharing in this service. The privilege. I don't think many of us think about giving in terms of privilege, right? When it's not reluctant and when it's not coerced, then it's a privilege. So at this point, I figure it's good to finish on a question that comes up over and again. We talked about it in our small group this last week. Someone texted in, I think, about it last Sunday. If you've got questions about this message, make sure I text them into that number and we'll get to them. Um, the question of how... Let's talk percentages, Right? So you've convinced me I should start giving. Let's talk percentages. So we've got Old Testament, Old Covenant example of the tithe. Tithe means 10%. Scholars will say it probably equated to between 23 and 30%. Once you tallied up all the tithes, there was more than one tithe and different times of the year and jubilee periods and harvests. And right. So but shake it all out. You're talking about 23, maybe 30% to be given by law to the temple. So you got that example. Some people are big on tithe. Some people are big on 10% at least. My own view is that we are new covenant people. We live in the covenant of grace, not the covenant of works. God doesn't command us to give 10 or 23 or 30% of our money. I think you can clearly see this in the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians 16, 
is what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day, on Sunday, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So he doesn't reference a percentage, he doesn't reference the tithe, he had the whole testament in front of him, he didn't go there, he said, this is about you and what you can give to God's kingdom ministry. So he says, do it regularly, we'll talk about this next week, we've got five guidelines for giving coming up next week, but do it regularly, so on the first day of the week, that should be for each of us, so no one's excluded from this. And we should set aside some money in keeping with your income. So you're talking about sort of a proportional giving or, you know, especially in these days, giving, your income would go up and down, right? Harvest good, is business good? Some of you are tradies or subcontractors, you know, you might earn heaps this week and not much the next week. For others of us, our wage is much more uniform than that and so we can be more broad in terms of our projected giving. But what he's saying is it's regular, it's... A responsibility for everyone, and it's proportional. It's depending on how you're doing in terms of income. So no talk of 10% there. And if you look through the New Testament, you're gonna, not going to find much, um, much of a confirmation for those who want to lay the yoke of tithing on the new covenant people of God. You can tell it's an early church thing because Tertullian wrote in the second century, every man, once a month, Bring some modest coin, or whenever he wishes, and only if he does wish, and if he can, for no one or nobody is compelled, it is a voluntary offering. So every man does it, they do it once a month, it's regular, but then there are a whole lot of caveats, right? He's really keen that you know he's not arm wrestling anyone for the cash, all right? Whenever he wishes, and only if he does wish, and if he can, nobody is compelled. He took the New Testament teaching on giving very seriously and he didn't fall into the satanic trap that many pastors and churches fall into where they try and shake you down for every cent. God help us if we ever do that. Now we've made the opposite error in our church and just never talk about it. All right? we'll just... And then people do what they do by nature which is just keep it all. But this is the pattern. There is no percentage per se, there isn't, at least there isn't any law that they uh, place on their people because we are new covenant people. We live in the covenant of grace. Having said that, having said that, I have found in my life, from the point I became a Christian at 19, working medial jobs for the next few years, not knowing exactly how much income I would get, I found that 10% were, was a good pair of training wheels for me. Because up until that point, every cent I had went into modifying my car and buying as much cheap beer and cigarettes as I could. All right? So into that context, suddenly I'm getting the same money, most of it cash, and they're telling me I've got to give. I found 10% was a good pair of training wheels. It's just easy to figure out. And it got me into the pattern of giving. Now, my belief is 10% can be a springboard to greater things. And I don't think God would expect less of us than he did his old covenant people. 
those of us who have experienced Christ's redeeming death on our behalf and the grace that has flowed hitherto. I don't think he's going to expect less, but I'm not going to give you a percentage. There's a nice little quote from Graham Benyon in a book called, I think it's Money Counts. Yeah, there it is. He says this, Giving is driven by God's generous grace to us and calls us not to a certain, certain percentages, but to cheerful, sacrificial generosity. Three great words. Cheerful, sacrificial generosity. 10% might be very generous for some, but pathetically small for others. The New Testament approach is less one of what must I give, but more what can I give. Now everyone just needs to drop their shoulders and relax, particularly those of you who have come out of what I would call abusive pastoral situations where you have had the yoke put on you. So for freedom, Christ has set us free. Take the yoke off. Feels good. And the thing about taking a yoke off is that it enables you to go a whole lot faster and more freely with greater worship and abandon and generosity. It's less of what must I give and more what can I give. That's the goal for our church, right? I thought for about 10 consecutive seconds about putting together a slide with a graph on it and maybe one of those little thermometers with how much behind budget we are at the moment. And we can talk about that because we want you to know as much as we know about finances. But that's not the goal of this. The goal is not to fill the thermometer, right? The goal is to have people in our church so enamoured with God's love and grace, so aware of his provision that they are set free to ask, how much can I give? One little footnote that I wanted to mention, I said it last week, but a lot of you weren't here then. Just, just to know, going back to the tithing thing, the 23 30%, you've got to remember, that was given to the temple. The temple was the governing authority of all things. That was the government. That was their taxes. That paid for welfare. That paid for roads, right? Whatever. That paid for all that stuff. So if you want to magically make the church the temple, we're going to have to start fixing this friggin' intersection where people smash into each other every week. And we don't want to do that. Um, related to that, I said last week, this is not where all of your giving should come. Please don't give us 100% of what you plan to give away. Please be mindful of things that you can give to charities and other people and families in need and to other, other things. I would be aghast to think that people were giving everything to us and nothing to anyone else. So I'm going to leave you with a quote this morning. And it's related to that last sentence we read. New Testament giving, right? The, the, the covenant of grace. That kind of giving is, is less about what must I give and it's all about what can I give. And I just want to give you an example and... The example is not me. The example is uh, of John Wesley. Some of you know this guy. So I'm just going to read this out, okay? Um, 
John Wesley is famous for saying, having first gained all you can, and secondly, saved all you can, then give all you can. Read that again. Having first gained all you can, so we're not against gain, we're not against ambition and entrepreneurism and and business smarts and making money and making seven figures, right? That would be great, actually. You could invest so much. Having first gained all you can, and secondly, saved all you can, then give all you can. Here's how he lived it out. In 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. In the first year, his income was 30 pounds, and he found that he could live on 28 pounds, so he gave away two pounds. In the second year, his income doubled, but he held his expenses even, and so he had 32 pounds to give away, which was a comfortable year's income. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he gave away 62 pounds. In his long life, Wesley's annual income advanced as high as 1,400 pounds. He's now one of the most famous people in the world. His sermons are selling like hotcakes, back in the time where people cared about this stuff, right? His books. One, all right, so hang on a second. 32 pounds is a year's income. His is now 1,400 pounds. But he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at any time. This so baffled the English tax commissioners that they investigated him in 1776, insisting that for a man of his income, he must have silver dishes that he was not paying excise tax on. So he wrote to them, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many round me want bread. When he died in 1791 at the age of 87, the only money mentioned in his will was the coins that could be found in his pockets and dresser. Most of the £30,000 that he earned in his life had been given away. He wrote, I cannot help leaving my books behind me wherever God calls me hence, but in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. In other words, I will put a control on my spending and I will go beyond the tithe for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're humbled by the example of John Wesley, the example of the Apostle Paul, the example of the Macedonians. And Lord, I just say with corporate responsibility, we, are, we just find ourselves so much more like those Corinthians. Some of us started a good work of giving but have ceased. Many of us have never begun. And for all of us, it's either driven by the kind of greed that wants to accumulate and build bigger barns, or it's driven by the kind of greed that worries and is anxious about tomorrow. So we need a miracle. We find ourselves in a desperate situation.
You've given commands to us. Not to be arrogant, not to hope in wealth, but to hope in you and to be generous and to share. You've commanded us, and yet we find ourselves at this point falling short. So Lord Jesus, would you please send your spirit to change our hearts. Not that we would be under more compulsion or more coercion or more guilt, but that we would be set free to worship you with our wallet. Heavenly Father, this will need to be a miracle if it's not going to be two months of high giving and then regression to mean. It's going to need to be a miracle if our hands are going to be loosed. It's going to need to be a miracle of your grace. So we ask for it. You're merciful. You're compassionate. You love us. You want what's best for us. Please save us. In Jesus' name. Amen.